That's the song. I'm going to talk about it in just a minute. Right now, I want to dismiss any of our children ages 4 through 5th grade to go to a special Easter edition of Kids Worship. Uh, Miss Sandra and Rachel are going to guide you out to the space on our property where some nice grass and some shade, and they're going to do a Jesus lesson for you guys. You get to talk about the resurrection. So you guys are dismissed. You can do that now. The rest of you, you're dismissed to stay in here with me and uh, do our resurrection lesson as we go through the song Living Hope, verse by verse, word by word. Hang in there. We're going to be jumping around a lot in Scripture. If you're fast at flipping through your Bible, you might be able to keep up. If not, don't worry about it. Uh, the song starts with the line, how great the chasm that lay between us, how high the mountain I could not climb. It brings to mind Isaiah chapter 59, the very beginning says this, surely the arm of the Lord is not too short to save, nor his ear too dull to hear, but your iniquities have separated you from God. Your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear. For your hands are stained with blood, your fingers with guilt, your lips have spoken falsely, and your tongue mutters wicked things. That's not a great reputation. But hang on, that's not the end of the story. That's just our starting place. But for every Christian, there's a realization that we are lost without God. That if we're left on our own, no matter how well-intentioned we are, we're going to do something that God doesn't want us to do, or we're going to fail to do something that God really needs us to do. In Greek, there's a word for this, and it's the word hamartia. Everybody say, hamartia. hamartia. You're like, wow, my face just got really hot, because that ha, hamartia. It's a word that means shooting an arrow at a target and missing. Not just missing the center of the target, but missing the target altogether. And we translate that word into English as sin. And the Apostle Paul says in Romans 3, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We need to realize God wants nothing more than to be in a relationship with us, but our sin creates this chasm that we can't span. It creates this mountain that we simply can't climb on our own. So the next line tells us what our response can be and what many, many people throughout history have done when they have this realization. In desperation, I turned to heaven and I spoke your name into the night. This kind of brings to mind Psalm 107. You may not be familiar with Psalm 107 right off the top of your head, but it tells four different stories about people who find themselves lost and then they cry out to God. One person finds himself lost in the desert. God, save me. One person lost in the darkness. Lord, save me. Another one, on the high seas. They're just doing their thing, but a storm comes up and they are doomed. Lord, save me. And the fourth one, in case you're interested in reading this later, is just somebody who makes a lot of dumb decisions. <laughs> and they find themselves in trouble of their own making. And they say, Lord, save me. And God rescues them. And maybe this is familiar to you. Maybe you have a story where you can pinpoint a time in your life where you said, man, I need God. I need his salvation. I'm lost, Lord. I need you to hear me and come and save me. My grandfather has a story like this. It's an amazing story that I got to hear just a few months before he passed away. It's a story of how he nearly drank himself to death. He was laying on his couch one night after a particularly harsh bender. His wife had just declared, we're done. I am leaving you. He thought he wasn't going to live to see the next morning. He made one of those deals with God. God, I've never been to church. I don't even know if you hear me, but save me. And he made it to the next morning. His wife didn't leave him. 
He never took a drink again. His life was transformed. And whether or not your experience is a dramatic moment like this or just a realization that we need God's help, this is a key part of the story of salvation, recognizing we need God in our lives. And then the song continues and tells what the faithful response is. Out of the darkness, your loving kindness tore through the shadows of my soul. The work is finished. The end is written. Jesus Christ, my living hope. Molly, go ahead and put this next slide on the screen. This is Colossians chapter 1. It talks about how we've been called and rescued out of the darkness. And I want to invite all of you just to, just to read along with me. Read this out loud. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. That's good news. That's our story. According to John, the last words that Jesus spoke while he was hanging on the cross were, it is finished. It's like Jesus knew. God's strange and wondrous plan to bring life to all of those who were lost through death, which is totally weird when you think about it, conquering death by a death? That doesn't make sense. But that's what happened. Death is destroyed. And the plan was complete. And I think that at that moment, Jesus knew it. He was just about to give up his spirit. He was just about to die. And he realized, hey, it's finished. I won. In professional chess, the games don't always end in a checkmate. Usually that's how a chess game ends, right? But there's this thing where the professional chess players know the game so well that several moves before a checkmate, one person will just say, you know what, let's not play anymore. They resign and they say, the game's basically over. You have won. I think that's what happened on the cross. Jesus knew the outcome. And I think Satan and death knew the outcome too. They're like, ah, yeah, okay, that's, that's it. You have won. Man, that's a lot in the first verse, huh? There's more. Stay with me. The second verse is the joyful and amazed response of someone who realizes that they have been made free. Listen to these words. Who could imagine so great a mercy? What heart could fathom such boundless grace? You may have heard that grace is the free gift of forgiveness that we get from God. We don't earn it. We don't deserve it. But there it is. Romans chapter 5 says this. Where sin increased, grace increased all the more, so that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace might reign through, gener uh, through righteousness to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Man, grace is a good thing. There's lots of grace. If you're wondering if God's grace can run out, the answer is no. Not yet, and I don't think it will. When I was a kid growing up in Washington State, they took us on this field trip to Snoqualmie Falls. It's this beautiful waterfall. It's twice the height of Niagara Falls, and every minute it dumps 450,000 gallons of water into the Snoqualmie River. I sat there on the rail and went, wow, spray on my face, boom, water, water, water. When I was home from college on a break with my friends, about 10 years after that, we went and we stood at the rail and we watched water, water, water. It didn't stop flowing, gallon after gallon after gallon. Wow, that's amazing. When Lisa and I got married and Molly was a baby, we took a trip up to Washington to visit family. We stopped by Snoqualmie Falls. We stood at the rail. Water, water, water. Wow. Didn't stop. You could go there tomorrow. You could drive up there and you could stand at the rail and you could watch. Water, water, water. Wow. That's God's grace. 
That is why we sing. That's why we celebrate. The God of ages stepped down from glory to wear my sin and bear my shame. You might even know where this one is going. God, in his glory, decides to take a step down, to come to earth in the form of Jesus. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. The cross has spoken. I am forgiven. This is the song again. The King of Kings calls me his own. I like that line, that the cross has spoken. Crosses have always kind of spoken for themselves. In the ancient Roman world, Rome used crosses to send a message to people who might dare defy the authority of Rome. They put criminals on the crosses, and they left them there in public places by the side of the road. And they sent a very clear message. You don't mess with us. But then in the Christian era, crosses speak a, a, a loud message as well, but it's a different, it's an opposite message. Crosses indicate places of worship. People who wear crosses around their neck might indicate someone who's a believer, someone who's a prayerful person. And on hospitals and first aid kits and relief organizations, the cross means, hey, this is a place where you can find help and healing. And all of that is because the cross that Jesus was nailed to speaks a word of finality about who has won the battle for our souls. Jesus' death means forgiveness of our sin. It means victory over death. And we realize the King of Kings calls me his own. This is the good news. We started out pretty bad. That Isaiah passage made us not want to read on. But the good news is, in Romans 8, nothing in all creation will even be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Like the prodigal son who returns home into the arms of his loving father, our response to Jesus' invitation of salvation and eternal life in him is, beautiful Savior, I'm yours forever. Jesus Christ, my living hope. We have a different life. We change our priorities. We repent. We're baptized into Christ. We received into the family of believers. We live our lives with a new identity as a lifelong follower of the risen Christ. That's verses 1 and 2. We're about halfway there, you guys. But we have this beautiful chorus that we sang together earlier. And I want to invite you just to sing it again with me now. Uh, Molly, just put the words up there, and I'll lead it to the best of my ability. Hallelujah. Praise the one who set me free. Hallelujah. Death has lost its grip on me. You have broken every chain. There's salvation in your name, Jesus Christ, my living hope. Does it feel good to say that? This chorus acknowledges that Jesus is our rescuer and that he delivers us from death. Hallelujah. Praise the one who set me free. Hallelujah. More good news. Death has lost its grip on me. Jesus tells the story of the parable of the sower. It's kind of cryptic, and it's like, what are you talking about? But he explains it later. And in that, he points out there's a kind of, there's a force out there. Jesus calls it the devil. It's trying to get you away from God. God's trying to sow his word into your heart, but there's something that comes along and wants to snatch it up before it can do anything 
meaningful. And then in John chapter 10, when Jesus describes himself as the good shepherd, he says, I will keep my beloved ones safe. He says, no one can come and snatch up the sheep from my hand. And both of these descriptions reveal that there's this reality that sin and evil and death are trying to lay claim on our lives. They're trying to tighten their grip in our lives. But Jesus, our Savior, says, I'm not going to let that happen. That's not what God wants for you. And you may have felt this in your life, this grip, this tightening grip of evil, this tightening, this, this weight that continues to weigh on us. You may have been trapped in an addiction or just struggling with resentment or a troubled relationship that you just can't seem to repair on your own. I've even had conversations with people who say, I know that how I'm feeling or what I'm doing isn't what I should be doing, but I, I just can't. I can't figure out a way to not go in that direction. They're describing this tight grip that the enemy wants to have in our lives. But we say, hallelujah, because Jesus has freed us from being enslaved to sin and darkness. He has rescued us. And listen, it's a dramatic rescue too. You have broken every chain. There's salvation in your name, Jesus Christ, my living hope. I'm going to jump back to Psalm 107. And if you're like, man, that Psalm 107 sounds good, I recommend reading it sometime this week. It's beautiful rescue stories. But let me read one of the passages about the one who was in darkness and was rescued. Molly, you can throw this scripture up on the screen. Some sat in darkness, in utter darkness, prisoners suffering in iron chains because they rebelled against God's commands and they despised the plans of the Most High. So he subjected them to bitter labor. They stumbled and there was no one to help. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble and he saved them from their distress. He brought them out of darkness, the utter darkness, and he broke away their chains. Let them give thanks to the Lord for his unfailing love and his wonderful deeds for mankind. For he breaks down gates of bronze and cuts through bars of iron. Jesus' mission was a rescue mission, and he does whatever it takes. And we knew this from the start of Jesus' ministry. In Luke chapter 4, he goes into the, the, the synagogue, and he finds the place where Isaiah, the guy earlier who was like, your hands are stained, you're in trouble, what's going on? He says this. This is the word of the ministry of Jesus. He starts out with this. The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me. Remember last week, anointed one is the king, the, the Messiah. He's anointed me to proclaim the good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim what? Wait, say it louder. He has sent me to proclaim what? Freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Ah, that's good stuff. And then, sing the chorus. Did we sing it already? We sang the chorus. We were just talking about the chorus. And then you get verse 3. Verse 3 says, Then came the morning that sealed the promise. Your buried body began to breathe. My favorite piece of alliteration in the whole song. Your buried body began to breathe. That's the Easter Sunday story. Jesus was not in a coma. Jesus was not asleep. Jesus was crucified on a cross until he was dead. And they stabbed him with a spear and were like, yep, he's dead. And they wrapped him in a cloth and they buried him in a tomb like you do with dead people. And the tomb was sealed. And we need to acknowledge that, yes, First century people didn't have all the medical technology and information that we have now, 
but they knew the difference between someone who's dead and someone who is not dead. And Jesus was dead. But on Sunday morning, Jesus was alive. What? His buried body began to breathe. He began to walk and speak and to get together and eat with his closest friends. The resurrected Jesus was not a ghost. The resurrected Jesus was not a hoax concocted by grief-stricken followers. The message that we hear today is that Jesus is alive. And this is an important thing to note because the truth about Jesus being the Lord of our lives and the Lord of our salvation and by believing and following him, all of these things, they depend on that piece of information being true. The Apostle Paul talks about this in his letter to the Corinthian church. If Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God. For we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead, but he did not raise him if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep, the, the, the Christians who have died uh, in Christ, they're also lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people to be most pitied. But, this is, this is the good news, Christ has indeed been risen from the dead. That's why we say, Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. He has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. And you may have heard me say this before, but this is why Easter is so important. Here comes my favorite N.T. Wright quote that I'm sure you've heard me say before. Easter, for Christians, is our greatest festival. If you take away Christmas, nobody wants to take away Christmas. Everybody go, aww. If you take away Christmas, here's what happens. You lose a couple chapters in Matthew and Luke. If you take away Easter, you lose the majority of the New Testament. The importance of the empty tomb and the resurrected Jesus cannot be overstated. This is our story. This is our song. Christians believe that the empty tomb speaks as loudly as the cross. Out of the silence, the roaring lion declares the grave has no claim on me. And like Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, the resurrection of Jesus ensures the resurrection of Jacob. Jacob's resurrection depends on Jesus' resurrection. Just like him, after I am laid in my grave, I am going to be raised at the time of the resurrection. And I'm going to walk again. And I'm going to talk again. And I'm going to eat food with my friends again. I'm going to be renewed and transformed. And it's all a, kind of a big mystery because I haven't been there yet. But that's where our hope lies. And that's verse 3. And that's all the words of the song. But did you notice when we sing this song, for some reason we sing verse 3 a second time. We don't have to. We got it. But whenever we sing this song, we sing it a second time. Maybe that's because, like I said, some things are just worth repeating because they're that important. He is risen. Maybe that's why. But I also think it's appropriate that we sing this verse a second time. Because when Mary and the other women went to the tomb, on Easter morning, and then they ran back and they told the apostles what they saw. Jesus was not in the tomb. An angel talked to us and said, he's alive. And then we saw him ourselves. We, want, we just wanted to tell you about that. 
Their reaction was probably, yeah, can you go ahead and say that a second time? You're going to have to hit me with that one again. And we have to understand that Peter and some of the other apostles who heard this message didn't quite know what to do with it. They were a little bit skeptical about this news really being true. And I think that a lot of people today are skeptical about this news being true as well. And understandably so. Many people today just dismiss this as Christian folklore, just part of the mythology. Kind of an interesting part of the story that we sing before we do our egg hunt, but not really based in any reality. Skeptics might say to believers, don't be so quick to accept this as true. But in response to that, I would say, don't be so quick to dismiss it as untrue. People sometimes weigh in with their modern views and a, an air of superiority, and they say, well, here's a more plausible explanation of what probably happened. I, I know what happened, and I'll set you straight. But a lot of times, those theories don't hold water, honestly. A lot of times, those theories don't take into account the first century customs from a, a, a culture long time ago and far, far away. They often assume that we can know things about the ancient Roman world that aren't really accurate. And they sometimes assume that we can know more about a one-time event than the people who were there and whose testimonies and eyewitness accounts have been recorded for us. I gotta say again, we know a lot of things that they didn't know back then. But the ancient people were not bumpkins. They knew that the news that they were sharing was unique. They knew that it was going to be hard to believe. And you know this because the historical accounts that we read in the Bible are written in a way that try to lend more credibility to something that would be really, really hard to accept. When you read the Gospel of Luke, you get names and you get places and you get details that we go, I don't really care what this guy's mother-in-law was called. Like, why do I care about this? But if you heard this message in the first century, you have that information if you wanted to know if it was true, you could investigate. You could travel to those places. You could go and interview those people and they say, yeah, like, I mean, he was alive. He was dead for sure. His buried body began to breathe. What do we do with that? That's why some of those details are there. There's historical evidence about the life, death, and even the resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth that is outside of the biblical account. We don't just believe what we believe because it's something we've sung all our lives or something that was passed down from our parents. We believe it because there's some truth to it. It's not just a blind faith, it is an examined faith, an educated faith, and I believe it's a reasonable faith. But at the same time, I will admit that I need the resurrection to be true because my salvation depends on it. So I want it to be true, but I don't just believe that it's true because I have this hope for it. I believe it because there's, a little, there's more than just a little evidence that it actually did happen. You may have a conversation like this, this season, Easter. Resurrection, is that real? You, you putting all your chips on that square? It's okay. I think it's healthy for believers to wrestle with their faith and their doubts. But I also encourage unbelievers to wrestle with their lack of faith and their skepticism. So maybe that's something you'll do this season. If you want to talk to me more about that, I like these kinds of conversations. Maybe this is the season where you'll pick up a book like Lee Strobel's The Case for Christ or uh, The Resurrection of the Son of God by N.T. Wright. That is 900 pages long, so not really a weekend read, but a lot of good stuff in there. Or Evidence That Demands a Verdict or any number of other ways to investigate. 
But however you get to a place of belief or unbelief in the resurrection, here comes the good news, the story that was passed on to us one more time. Then came the morning that sealed the promise. Your buried body began to breathe. Out of the silence, the roaring lion declared the grave has no claim on me. Jesus, yours is the victory. That's what I wanted to share with you this morning. I know there was a lot of scriptures in here. There was a lot of uh, things to jump around. I don't expect anybody to download this slide presentation and go to somebody and say, all right, so Colossians, and all right, here's Corinthians, and all right, here's Isaiah. Like, you don't need to, because we have this song. We have these three verses and these three choruses that tell our faith. They tell the story of salvation. They do it so well. I really hope that this song will float melodically around your head all week and beyond, and I hope that these truths will be written on our hearts. I'll be back up here in a few minutes because I'm going to be leading us in a communion thought. But for now, I just want to say Happy Easter, everybody. He is risen. I want to invite you to stand with me and let's sing this song of faith one more time.